last few weeks we have been discussing the connection between faith, our faith, and our daily work. And we've said that work is a gift from God. It's a blessing, not a curse. God himself is a, is a worker and uh, has made us partners with him in caring for his world, advancing his kingdom of love. Thank God for work, for it not only is the means by which we can make a, a livelihood, but it brings meaning, some meaning and purpose to our lives. And we are indeed blessed if we love what we do. But let us heed this warning. We can love our work too much. We can end up worshiping work, a good thing in itself to the exclusion of God and family, and friends, and all we hold dear. And so often, you know, it's not the obviously evil things that would lead us astray, but it's good things we love too much. So that work becomes an idol when it's elevated to the level of the sacred, becomes the controlling center of our lives, and has top priority over everything else. And believe me, there are plenty of folks these days who are doing just that. They are uh, business executives and, and professionals and coaches and managers and shopkeepers and workers of various kinds who will literally drop everything, marriage, family, friends, even moral values, to advance a career. Work is allowed to trump everything else. Years ago, I was uh, marrying a couple in the church, and I counseled with this couple. They were being married for the second time. Uh, you know, so we talked about their relationship, and uh, uh, it seemed like a, it was a pretty good match that they were suited for, from, for each other as far as what they could tell me. Uh, and so uh, the day of the wedding came, and I remember being in the back of the church waiting to go out with the groomsmen, you know, to greet the bride. And literally just moments before going out into the sanctuary, the groom was talking about a very complicated, detailed um, business venture he was in with his groomsmen. And so as I, <laughs> I thought that was so odd. Because here was, uh, you know, one of the great moments of his life, you know, uh, the, uh, you know the, uh, a sacred celebration. And here he was talking about business. And so as I walked out with him and with the groomsmen, I knew right then and there that that marriage would not last. And you know that that marriage lasted two weeks. And that was one of the sadder moments of my ministry, and uh, that was a failure that I, I regret. How many marriages has the God of work destroyed? And I wonder how many relationships between parents and children have been ruined because of a parent's obsession with work and the attendant lack of time and attention paid to children. Work has indeed become a religion for many. There's even a name for it. It's called workism. The other day, I ran across an article uh, 
by a, a commentator for Atlantic Magazine. Derek Thompson was his name. And the, the article actually was pretty insightful. And this is what he says. This is the title of the article, actually. Workism is making Americans miserable. For the college-educated elite, work has morphed into a religious identity, promising identity, transcendence, and community, but failing to deliver. He says, the decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with the explosions of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty, some worship political identities, and others worship their children. And workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. used to be, you know, that people used to, to work so they could have more leisure. Now people want less leisure and they want more work. But it's not delivering the goods. This article uh, struck a chord in me uh, because uh, pastors have a tendency to worship their work rather than the one that they're supposed to serve. An acquaintance of mine, uh, his name is Mark Galley, is the uh, editor of Christianity Today magazine, and we were in a young pastors group together, oh, just five years ago. <laughs> I don't know, many years ago. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I saw that Mark Galley had actually uh, written a little blog on this, this same article that I saw on workism. And, and he said, you know, this, uh, Mark says that this really struck a chord in him because he was a pastor, now he's an editor for this magazine. And, and, uh, and, and, he, and Galley points out how, even, how pastors are subject to workism. This gives you a little insight into, into the work of pastors, but uh, this goes for all of us. He says, in seminary, we future pastors were warned about becoming too identified with our roles so that our whole identity became wrapped in our religious, becomes wrapped in our religious work. The temptation is strong since the pastor is seen as holy work. But as any pastor will tell you, the pastor also fails to deliver on identity, transcendence, and community. And he goes on to say, churches are human institutions, and when it comes to these supposed deliverables, they'll let you down time and again as do businesses and nonprofits. I'd have to write a novel to explain how that is so, but believe me, it is so, as well as why, nonetheless, committing oneself to a church as a pastor or a member is still crucial to one's spiritual welfare. And then he goes on to say, thus, even pastors need to ground their identity first in Christ and in the various callings on their lives, husband, father, neighbor, and so forth to retain a healthy relationship to their work. So what goes for pastors also goes for all of you. That is, first and foremost, we must ground our identity in Christ. We are more than just what we do. Now, the world gives a very different message and that message is, is that work is the means to ultimate meaning and self-fulfillment. It's the primary determinant of our self-worth and of our personal identity. In other words, you are what you do. 
And you know when people, uh, men in particular, they first greet somebody and one of the first questions will, that will be asked will be, well, what do you do? As though that matters the most about us. And although our work continues and contributes to our sense of self-worth, the foundation of our self-worth is based not on what we do, but upon who we are. We are children of God. Our identity is in Christ. And the trouble is, as, as, I've, as I've said, work is unable to deliver the goods. For ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction is not a matter of what we do or how hard we try. It's something that God gives. It's something that comes to us from the outside, beyond ourselves. Only God can fill the void in our hearts. It is God who says, you know what? You are valuable. Not dependent upon what you do, but because of who you are, you are mine. But we forget all this, and so we lay expectations upon our work that work cannot deliver. Our work cannot ultimately make us happy, but only God can. So it's clear that the world's ways are not God's ways. It's no wonder then that the Apostle John reminds us in his letter, and this is from the, the message version, a little bit more contemporary, don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezed out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from Him. The world and all is wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So that failing to give God first place in our hearts, failing to love Him as we ought, uh, we have made an idol of work, many of us. And that God is actually a, a harsh taskmaster. It can become enslaving. It can be become an obsession. Driven to succeed in the eyes of the world, we don't know how to quit or to let go or to find some rest. I was surfing the internet. I ran across a blog, and uh, it's the confessions of a, of a workaholic, a guy by the name of Ron Shear, who after almost 15 years with a marketing communications firm, left his job to work as an independent consultant helping companies improve their presentation and communications online. And he shares in this little blog of his, this personal blog, actually it was on Business, uh, business Week Online, he shares his private struggles. Maybe some of you could relate to this. He says, the workaholism issue is a real one for me. I am never more than a couple steps mentally from the computer. What keeps me tethered is the fear that if I stop, my whole world will come crashing in on me. It's hard to get out of that mindset for even a few minutes. Because of the kind of work I've chosen, online consulting, I am never more than a step or two away from it. I'm embarrassed at how my mind loses focus when I'm with someone I care about. Even if I don't turn the subject of conversation around to my work, I'm thinking about it while I talk to the person. I need to rediscover how to do nothing, to relearn that rest is not a waste of time. 
So I think he does that. He, you know, he speaks for a lot of people these days. There are many people who literally don't know how to stop working. They don't like vacations. They don't know how to rest. They don't know how to stop. And as you know, today's technology has made matters worse, where cell phones and laptops have tethered us even more tightly to the office. So that according to one pollster, uh, uh, Lou Harris, 86% of all Americans are chronically stressed out, much of it brought about by overwork. And Americans trying to cope with their stress consume about 30 tons of aspirins, tranquilizers, and sleeping pills every day. And the worship of work can not only lead to health problems, but as I've said, can destroy marriages and families and friendships. Something has to give. Work has to be dethroned and God needs to rule. For God is a jealous God and will tolerate no rivals for attention and adoration. And so we're reminded of the commandment, the commandments. And God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. In other words, put God first. And then and only then is work put into proper perspective with everything else in our lives. So how do we do that? An important way is to keep the Sabbath. And so, again in the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. <clears throat> do you know what a blessing that commandment was? to a bunch of Hebrew slaves who had to work every waking hour, seven days a week. The Lord, in His gracious provision, says, you are not your work. You are more than your work. You're not just a worker. You belong to me. You get a break. You got to rest. Because that's how I made you. I made you so that you might strike a balance between your work and your play and your rest. And if you are all work and no play and no rest, you're on your way to ruin. By giving us a Sabbath command, God would have us remember that life is more than work. We're more than workers. 
You know, a few years ago, a major NFL coach <clears throat> retired, and following the news conference at which he announced his resignation, a reporter pulled him aside. Coach, he asked, how is it that you are retiring from professional football after only three or four years, while men like Tom Landry, the former coach of the Dallas Cowboys, have been in the game for 20 or more years? And the retiree paused for a moment and looked at the reporter right in the eye and said, Well, Tom Landry was a Christian. He loved to win as much as anyone I had ever met. But Tom realized that the biggest thing in life is not football. I don't normally want to mention certain people, but this is a bit out in the public. There's another Dallas Cowboys former coach by the name of Jimmy Johnson. You know Jimmy Johnson? He's, on, he's still commentating. And, uh, and literally, Jimmy Johnson, and he would admit this, football was everything. Winning was everything. And so he obsessed about it. He was married and so that he, would, he could devote more time to, to, his, uh, to his football. He just divorced his wife. And he was never around Thanksgiving or Christmas. Actually, practically, uh, you know, didn't give his children the time of day. It was all about football. I don't know if he's changed at all. I know he's still really into football. And he's remarried, and, and I think he's made some amends with his kids. Um, but as Tom Landry, the old coach knew, Life is more than football, which is a game after all. Life is more than work. <clears throat> and so by keeping the Sabbath, remembering who we are and whose we are, we realize just that fact, that the biggest thing in life is not football or the firm or even the family, actually. The biggest thing in life is not position or power or possessions. The biggest thing in life is not our career. The biggest thing in life is God. So that taking time out on the Sabbath to, wor to worship and to read Scripture, to contemplate, to reflect upon Him, is to put first things first. So that we allow God to be the controlling center of our lives because He, can, he is the only one who can fill that void. And then by keeping the Sabbath, we also find time to rest and to play and to enjoy, enjoy God's good creation. So part of Sabbath keeping is also like taking a walk, enjoying a sunset, having fun. That's part of it too. It's about striking a balance in life. Someone has reminded us, actually it was Peter Lynch, you know, the, the Fidelity Magellan Mutual Fund guru quit his, his, uh, his work at the age of 46 so that he could spend more time with his family. And, uh, and he said famously, nobody on his deathbed ever said, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. You've heard that before, right? <clears throat> Jewish writer by the name of Noah Ben Shia put it this way. Our life is like a tapestry. 
And by the tapestry's nature, it demands we work on it from the back, in a blind. The Sabbath is a reminder that one day in seven, or one hour in seven, or one minute in seven, we should step back and turn our tapestry over so we can see the larger pattern of who we are, the implication of our efforts, and the world therein we work. And when we take time to do that, we discover that life is more than work. Put God first, and our lives will find their proper balance. So Jesus' words are like a balm for a work-weary world, for stressed-out people. Come to me, all you who are weary and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Amen.